This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. People think, unfortunately, that you don't necessarily need to work hard to be very successful. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. I think you need to bust your ass and work hard and, and say yes to work. Because a lot of people, I think, have become very entitled to say no to work early on in their career. But you don't know what yes is going to be your winning lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. You have to say yes and do the work and do it like as hard and passionate and like with a success mindset, like as much as you can. Welcome to The Real Real, where we go behind the highlight reel and go into the unfiltered. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Real Real Podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. In today's episode, I am interviewing Juan Camilo Maisel. And if you do not know who he is, I just want you to think about the word entrepreneur. Because if you think about the word entrepreneur and what it means, it is literally Juan. The second you hear this episode, you'll understand. But he actually has started multiple businesses. And one of his first businesses was to be the Amazon of South America. So if you can imagine the type of entrepreneur that he is, it is someone that it's very much the motto, go big or go home. And so I am super excited to have him on the podcast. Um, And before we jump into it, I also wanted to let you know that the audio for the first minute is going to be really weird. (laughs) It's going to be a very strange audio because for some reason, my mic didn't pick it up. My mic started recording like a minute in. I have no idea why. I don't know what happened. I didn't hit anything. It just when I hit play, it was like into the first question that I asked, um, which was about his childhood. So the first minute is going to be my camera audio, which is really bad. But the rest of the podcast is crisp mic audio. So if you can get through the first minute, then I promise it's going to be really good audio. For so I need to figure out this like mixer that I'm using because I'm always having issues with it and I don't really understand why. So bear with me as I try to bring you the best quality podcast. I hate that it happened in the beginning because then it's like, I feel like if people listen to it and they're like, yeah, bad audio, but I promise it's literally like once he starts answering the first question and then the audio gets nice and crispy again. So it will be good audio for the remainder of the episode. And before we get into the podcast, I also want to say that Spotify Wrapped came out this week. And you guys, I got so many people posting that The Real Real was one of their top podcasts. So thank you so much. That means so much to me that you guys are listening to this week over week. And you guys are enjoying the episode. So if you are a regular listener, please let me know. Post this on your stories. Share it with your friends. This episode is going to be definitely one of like my original episodes where I would interview a guest and they had a really cool story. And this should be just called like business boot camp because that's essentially what it is, is I get the nitty gritty answers from the most like He's just such an entrepreneur. I can't even begin to explain it. You just have to listen to the episode to hear more about it. But 
It was such a great episode. We met because we were both on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and not the national list, you guys. I did not make the national list. I want to clarify. I was pretty bummed I didn't make the national list because I know we were contenders for consumer tech as well as social media. Um, So I was really hoping that we would get one of them, but we ended up not getting it, which it's okay. I still have two more years in me to get Forbes 30 under 30, but also it's just a list. It doesn't really matter, but I was definitely bummed when I didn't see Rella or any of our names on that list. But I also am like, wait, also like we got the local list. We've accomplished a lot. I need to not care about that. But that's my unfiltered moment of the week. I want to start this segment where I kind of share my unfiltered moment of the week, whether it's good or bad. It doesn't have to be negative, but just something that I'm not like posting about. And you better believe if I was Forbes 30 under 30, I would have posted about it. But I wasn't. And I was pretty bummed. And that's my thought is that it's okay to be upset about not making something or even if people think it's stupid, like I was upset about it and I was hard on myself. And I just want to be honest with you guys. So I hope that you know that it's okay to feel that way. But yeah, so that is my unfiltered thought of the week is that I was very bummed about not making Forbes 30 under 30, but I do believe that I'll make it another year. So in the next two years, I hope to make it. Uh, And I'm speaking that and putting that out there. But also I did make the local one. So technically I did make one, but my goal is to be on the national list. Anyways, that is not the point of this podcast. This podcast, we just talk about uh, Juan's journey from starting all of the businesses he started, his mindset, just what it means to be an entrepreneur, how people can become entrepreneurs. And if you want a masterclass in how to start a business, then this episode is for you. And I try to you know, ask the questions that I know that you guys would want to listen to. And so I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. If you do, please be sure to share it with friends, post it on your story, give us a review on Spotify or Apple. And I just really appreciate everyone who has posted about us. And I keep saying we, I just like view, it's like me and the podcast, like the podcast is its own person. But I also think of it as like a team effort, like everyone that works on this podcast. So that's why I do like to say we, but seriously, thank you. It literally makes me so happy because podcasting is so one-sided. I'm just like talking into a mic and I never see the other end. Now with it being on YouTube, I do get comments and stuff like that. But besides that, it's very one-sided. And so it just makes me happy when I see people posting about it. So anyways, thank you guys again so much. Um, Again, bear with the bad audio. I have no freaking clue why that happened. I need to look into it. But anyways, I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode and let's get into it. Hello, Juan. Thanks for coming on The Real Real. Of course. Thank you for having me. So we know each other through the Forbes group, the Forbes 30 under 30 group from Miami. Um, but on that list, you were, it's like grip shipping is what it talks about. And I had no idea that you were also one of the early members, founding members of Butcherbox too. So I thought that was super cool. Um, and then I, when I looked up your history, you also had done like a bunch of other entrepreneurial ventures. So I knew that I had to have you on the podcast. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course, of course. No, it's, uh, it's, it's good to be here. And I, I like what you do, uh, in podcasts, mostly from the you know, getting into what's the actual work mm-hmm. that it takes to build a company and not just the success part. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I like the theme about the podcast. Thank you, thank you. So I actually always, whenever I have an entrepreneur on or someone that's starting a company, I love to ask about your childhood because I think it's interesting, at least for me, 
when I was growing up, I see more of what I'm doing now. Like I see how it led me to what I'm doing now from back when I was like a little kid versus even when I was in school. Like in school, I was an engineering major, but I don't really do anything with that now as much. Um, but when I was little, I always started these like little businesses or was in front of a camera a lot. I loved to make like home videos and it kind of is very similar to what I'm doing as a job now. So what was your childhood like? Were you someone that you were very, you could tell that you were going to be an entrepreneur from a kid or, or no? Uh, that's almost always the case. Yeah. When you said. So, you know, I've, I've been working on something or selling something mm -hmm. since like I can remember. Yeah. So when I, you know, one of the funniest one that I can remember is. So my mom is from a small town in Colombia. And then I grew up in, I'd say, mid-sized town in Colombia, Barranquilla. But when I used to go to my mom's hometown, I used to buy a bunch of candy because the, the prices are lower in mm -hmm. the small town. And I used to bring a full bag of candies with me to my town and just I'd be like the candy guy in school. <laughs> and, I would candy like, dealer. Yeah, and I would like <laughs> arbitrage the prices from the small town to the mid town because, you know, like it's almost like, you know, New York City prices versus you know, like rural America prices, right? right. It's like prices, it's different pricing, like for the same McDonald's hamburger. So I would like arbitrage and I would basically like retail sale by the unit, but then I would also wholesale by the bag. And I would like make so much money doing this where my family would basically ask me like, hey, where are you like making all this money? Up? Like, you yeah. know, what, are you, what are you doing with this thing? <laughs> They're like concerned yeah, of what you're yeah, doing. Yeah. So, so I started, you know, like as, as young as I can remember and and a lot of it also, you know, comes from my dad, like seeing him work a lot. He's also an entrepreneur, you know, mm -hmm. business owner. He runs a 100-year-old a family business. Wow. So he's the fifth generation running the business. So a lot, of, a lot of that came from that. You know, another one I remember is I would always go to work with my dad on like any free day that I would have. And I would do like, you know, anything from cashier work, just, you know, standing outside a store and like being the person who grabs the bag, you know, the items, put them inside the bag and just get paid tips at the end of the line. Or, you know, part of the business is a liquor distribution business. And in Colombia, everything needs to be like stamped with like mm -hmm. a government approval. So I would climb the mountains of bottles and I would sit there with a massive pack of stickers and I would just like pack every single bottle. How old I, were you? like seven eight years like okay, you know so super little. young yeah. yeah but i would like go into the warehouse like the entire day and i would just go out with my clothes dirty and sweaty for the full day and i would get paid like you know five bucks or ten bucks mm -hmm. like, you know whatever it is but yeah. i remember at the end of the day my dad would sign a check that i would then have to go to the cash register and like you know cash mm -hmm. in but that's like as, as early as i can remember you know then i did like a bracelets business in school where we were like making bracelets out of all these different you know, fun materials. Like, you know, what you just said, right? Yeah. Like, as, yeah. you know, as much as I can remember, I've been either trying to sell something, trying to build a business, trying to work, you know, trying to add value somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I feel like a lot of the people that I talk to that are entrepreneurs usually come from a similar background. Yeah, that's very similar to when I grew up also. Like, I was doing, like, the video stuff, but I always tried to like sell anything or start like a service business when I had no experience doing that. But I just I always had a mindset when I was little. And I think it's probably our parents. Like I'm sure your parents were the same way where like nothing was ever not possible. Like it, it was always like, OK, yeah, try like go ahead, do it. Like, were they supportive of you doing these little like ventures even when you were younger? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think so. Yes, but 
I think I've always also been taught the mindset of if you're going to do something, like do it big. Uh-huh. Like how can this actually become a, a real business? And I learned that more growing up. I'm pretty sure that, you know, when I was super young, my dad would just be like, you know, you yeah. sell whatever you want to sell. But growing up, it's always been the mindset of, hey, yes, you want to start this, but you know, how can that be a billion dollar idea? How can that be a hundred million dollar idea? And just you know, thinking through the possibilities of what can that actually become? Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today, as it should, with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Heirs tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon, violet, and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz-free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 450 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration, and according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. 
And did you have pressure though to go into the family business? Because five generations is a lot. Yeah. Do, you have, do you have sisters or brothers? I have two siblings. They're both older than me. One of them is someone involved in the family business. He runs a department of the business, like a solar distribution, like solar equipment distribution company, which is basically a branch of the business. Mm -hmm. But then my other brother runs a fintech company that he started a couple of years ago. So both of them great entrepreneurs, but none of them like actually, you know, directly involved in the family business. And I, I don't know. I think my dad wants us to just know go out learn uh mm -hmm. bring him stuff as well that he can get involved in as well yeah so i don't necessarily know that he wants us to just go back believe in where we grew up and like you know work straight in the business but we stay very close together for sure mm -hmm. and when did you move to the united states from Colombia? 10 years ago in september okay so was it for college or for college i went to boston to bentley university mm -hmm. uh, my first day in boston ever was my first day of school Wow. So you never saw the campus. You no. had no... And Boston from Columbia, I mean, culture shock in <laughs> every way, but also like the weather. Oh, yeah. <laughs> culture shock. So funny story, semi-ignorant. <laughs> um, I did not know it snowed in Boston really? until I got there. You had no idea what Boston was like? I mean, I heard what Boston was like. I knew that I was a big baseball player growing up, so I knew, you know, Red Sox from Boston and you okay. know, I knew something about the city. But I had no idea it got that cold. <laughs> uh, I like it now, though. I do a lot of snowboarding. So I, okay. I learned to appreciate the cold because it means that snow is coming. I can go snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And I like, the, you know, the, the mental piece of being sliding down a mountain. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so different. Yeah, no, so different. <laughs> so what was your experience like when you got to school? Like, were you trying to immerse yourself in the American college life, like parties and going out? Or were you more focused on, you know, I'm here because I want to learn and I want to, you know, start my business and grow from there or both? <laughs> um, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had fun in school. Mm -hmm. You know, school was amazing for me. I met a lot of people. I definitely had some decent amount of partying, but I learned a lot. And I think I learned a lot, not necessarily from the academics of the school. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's some learning there, but I think most of the learning is you know, getting away from the house, like, you know, learning to, hey, how to run your own budget, how to run your own house, how to meet people, how, mm -hmm. to, how to understand, how to add value to people so that you can then get, you know, value added at some point from that person in return. And not that you're expecting it, but like building a relationship yeah. that is going to, at some point, you know, down the line, uh, be something important for you. So I made a lot of good friends from college. Most of those friendships I still hold very strong and a lot of, you know, great people doing great things. So, so school for me was, yeah, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I would try to go snowboarding every weekend when I, uh, when I could. And I also worked very hard, you know, in school sometimes, but I also started a couple other businesses while in school. Uh, one of them we were chatting about, which was we were trying to create the Amazon of South America. Which is a very big effort. <laughs> <laughs> the Amazon of anything uh, is yeah, going to totally, be big. Totally. So, you know, there's no Amazon, it's still to this date. There's no actual Amazon in South America. Really? Yeah. You can get some stuff, but one, it takes a lot of time because it's shipped from the US or mm -hmm. it's very specific stuff that they warehouse down there. So it's not like the same experience. You can't yeah, just it's go not to Amazon. Prime and it comes, oh, no. Like I yeah. ordered something this morning and it's already at oh, my yeah. apartment. Yeah, yeah. Totally. From this morning. No, no, no. <laughs> this is, it's, it's, so, it's so different back there. But I've always been like, you know, working and studying and then at the same time trying to enjoy myself because a lot of the relationship you, you know, you do out of out of both, out of working, out of studying and just meeting people and 
you know, having meaningful experiences with people. Yeah. So tell me about the first one then. Tell me about the Amazon or was that the first one? Did you have a business before that? Probably not. Not officially. I think this was like the first time that we said, okay, let's start a, you know, formal company and try to make this thing big and and work. Because that's a very, not only for your first company, but just anything building an Amazon in South America, (laughs) like that's huge. So how did you come up with the idea and how did it end up going and where did you start? So I grew up after baseball, as I said, I moved into soccer as almost every single kid in South America. And then I got, you know, very into it. I started playing almost every single day and I wanted to buy a new pair of cleats and I just, I could find like two of them. One of them was not my size. The other one was not the color I wanted. So I was like, why can't I just go online and like buy something and just show yeah. something to my door? So, you know, classic question that, that an entrepreneur is asking themselves. And I was like, hey, something needs to exist down here, like in the U.S., where you can just go online, see every single size of yours, filter by the size, the quality, the brand that you want, and just like get it delivered to your door. Yeah. So we started the company. The way that we approached it at first was, hey, let's find big retail suppliers across the country that we can do basically API connections into their inventory systems so that we can get real-time updates of pricing and inventory and just sell it basically mm-hmm. be a marketplace for that, but a controlled marketplace uh, by us. In South America, distributors and suppliers usually sell a lot of different stuff because you can't be big just like selling pillows. Yeah. You, know, you have to sell a little bit of everything so you can create a big company. So we found these different suppliers. We uh, integrated into their APIs, into their inventory systems. And, you know, we created a marketplace. We started selling stuff in the country, everything from washing machines to TVs to toys for kids. Like Amazon. Yeah, like Amazon, literally. <laughs> uh, we had like 30,000 SKUs super early on in this. And then we started running the company. Uh, How did you figure out? Because you make it sound very easy. Like, yeah, we found these <laughs> We found these retailers and then we just started selling. But like, how did you figure out logistics? Were you doing the shipping or was it still the retailers that were doing the shipping? A combination. It was not easy. Business is not easy in, 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 on any form. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of work and sacrifice that goes into it for sure. But, you know, just trying things. I try to approach creating companies and services with rapid iterations of mm-hmm. whatever you're creating. And working close with the customer. And we implement this at the new company, a group as well, where we do fast innovation cycles, which means that we go from idea to product to feedback very fast with the customer in the middle of that equation or mm-hmm. of that triangle. Mm-hmm. That means you have an idea for a product, then you talk to the customer about it, then you move into the actual product, you create the you know, lowest effort MVP product for that. Then you go back to the customer for feedback. And then with that, you go back to the idea and then create another product with it. Mm-hmm. So I learned that very, very early on in my career with this company where, like, as an example, you know, there was basically no payment processing system down in Colombia that time. PayPal had just left the country because there was no business for them down there. What year was this? 2013, maybe, or 2012. Yeah, like 10 plus years ago, okay. 10 years ago. But bankerization in South America and Colombia at that time was like 2%, you know, basically non-existent, mm-hmm. only for cert- certain people. And even within that, credit cards were even more rare. Mm. So we, for example, rapidly understood that we had to build a system to collect cash on delivery. So we were delivering TVs, collecting cash, sending it back to financial institutions, and we created this whole logistics you know, loop for that. And that's where I started learning a lot about logistics because I was, you know, forcing myself to, hey, this needs to work one way or the other. Yeah. So were you in Boston doing this or were you in South America? Uh, I was mostly living in Boston, but just 
going between both places. Okay. And then one of my brothers, Gabriel, who's like a year older than me, he's a great engineer. Mm-hmm. And he was basically the one leading all the platform development and all these inventory API connection that we were having into our suppliers. So he was a guy who was like in Colombia at the time because he went to school in Bogota in, in Colombia. So he was like basically the presence there in Colombia for this. Did you have experience in this before you started this business or how did you learn so quickly? (laughs) Like, because I think a lot of people think and I think it's one is the difference between like entrepreneurs and people that aren't. But even for a lot of people that want to start their own business, they think, oh, well, I don't have experience in that. Or how do you even do that? How do you take Mm -hmm. the first step? So how did you start learning about this? Was it just Google and you were then calling people and talking to them (laughs) or what was your process like? What you just said, like the hardest thing is to get started. Mm-hmm. Like that's just so hard to make that decision and say, hey, I'm going to get started with this. Yeah. That's like, you know, the first hardest thing. The second hardest thing is continuing. Yeah. Because... I think starting can be really <laughs> exciting. Like for me, I love starting. There's so many unknowns. You're like, have so oh, yeah. many ideas. You put it together in like a document and then you start <laughs> talking to people and everyone's excited. <laughs> and then once you're in it and you're doing it, I think that for me is the hardest part. Oh, yeah. Like right after the start, continuing and like not plateauing. Yeah. And... I mean, how exciting is creating your first logo? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, the branding so cool. and the, the branding. website. But and... <laughs> that's like 0.0001% of what you're going to have to do. Um, I read this stat the other day that, and this is relevant for you, saying that the average number of episodes that a podcast puts out is three in the yeah, lifetime. That's insane. That means people start and don't continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so persistence and starting is like, you know, so important. So after you take that very hard step, which is like starting, then after that, second hardest is, okay, how do I continue to do this? And just, you know, don't give up with it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that gives you a lot of like the learning experience to say, okay, I tried going left and left is not the way to go because I'm losing money or my customer is not buying my product or my customer is buying my product. But he's saying that if I do X and Y, they will buy 2X more mm-hmm. then okay, I go right. You know, that's like, right. but you have to do that very fast because if you just get caught in that, decision like paralysis then i think that's like the words that you can do for innovation and putting a company together i often say with the people that i work with that a bad decision it's much better than no decision at all yeah that's so true because when you make a bad decision then you at least know that that's not the correct way and then Mm -hmm. you know what the correct way is but if you just don't get started and don't push and don't make any decision at all, you're just never going to know what the right path for that specific decision is. So that's basically the mindset of like how to learn fast when doing these things. Yeah, no, and I agree. I think you just have to start and you have to keep going. That's it. Like the people that make really successful businesses have a lot of failures behind them and they also have just persistence. Just <laughs> They've put in the hours and the days and the years that it takes to build something and they just don't give up because mm-hmm. I think so many people view it as glamorous or they're like, oh, I want to start a business. That's so cool. <laughs> I have this good idea. And then once it gets difficult or they do stuff that they don't really like, then it's kind of like, OK, never mind. Shut it down. Yeah. So see what you're saying is what I think it's one of the most dangerous mindsets that has started to ramp up over the last few years with the access 
to only the bright side of success stories that people see. Mm-hmm, so, totally. you know, social media, for example, you see very successful people in social media. And now that they're not successful, like, you know, there's a lot of people like actually talking about their real successes out there. Mm-hmm. But mostly you only see the success and they only talk about the success. And the only people talking are the ones that are successful or at least pretending yeah. to be successful. So mm-hmm. one or the other. But like, I can guarantee that 99% of these are like 20 year overnight successes. Yeah. You know, like yeah. people that have been grinding for the last 20 years and sacrificing and working so hard for the last 20 years. And I think, for example, platforms like Netflix actually have done a very good job mm-hmm. at trying to turn this around because they're coming out with shows like, for example, the um, I watched these three. I like like biographies, route biography stuff. So I watched David Beckham, the Arnold mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger and the uh, Robbie Williams shows. Okay. And every single one of them basically shows them grinding you know for the last like 30 plus years yeah like sacrificing their childhoods you know david beckham basically in manchester united since he was like i don't know 14 years old and like you know not having any friends and just like basically playing soccer for forever uh, you know arnold basically lifting weights since he's like you know so young and moving to the u.s at a very young age and sacrificing being home with his family mm-hmm. uh, and then robbie williams joining this very early stage band when he was like 15 years old and then getting kicked out and like going through depression like these are all things that people don't see because right. you know social media you see oh yeah you know they have a nice car a nice house and like whatever and, and they're having fun but you know, it's like 20 30 years of like hard work to actually get to that side of, of the equation yeah no i always say that overnight success does not exist like just <laughs> because you just heard of that person or you just you know now they're popular they probably were working at whatever it is they're doing for years before mm-hmm. they became an overnight success <laughs> and that's with like anything business entertainment influencers like anything like you're nope. doing stuff for so long before anyone ever sees what you're working on nope and then oh amazing you're <laughs> like overnight it's like mm, no this has taken so long so you started the first your amazon of south america business like what happened with it how did that transition to your next thing so we closed it i think that you know, we were probably like three to four years too early to try to start that in south america which mm-hmm. you know we could have pushed through honestly but we just you know, multiple reasons decided to close it. And then when in Boston, I wanted to get back in the path of creating something like what we have tried before. But my thought process was, hey, let me find a leader in the space local to Boston that I can work close with, learn from, understand what systems they use in the U.S. for this and bring them back to South America. Mm-hmm. So that was my original plan. So I Googled Boston Best Commerce Startups. And I found a company called Custom Made, which used to be a like woodworkers marketplace. So kind of similar marketplace to what we have put together before, you know, not woodworkers, but like the same type of um, marketplace mentality. So I found the CEO's email address. I Googled the guy. I sent him an email, cold email. I said, hey, I like what you're doing because X and Y reasons. I want to learn from you. Let's go for a coffee. And he said, hey, Asaf two weeks ago or whatever time, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just starting this, this being uh, ButcherBox. That if we you interested about it, let's go for a coffee. So, I mean, at first I was like, shipping frozen meat in the mail? Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to ship t-shirts, washing machines and TVs. Like, what is this thing about shipping frozen meat in the mail? Like, how is this even possible? So, you know, either way, the next day we went for a coffee in Harvard Square. And then the day after that, I joined the team as like one of the very, very um, early people in the team. I think it was like, you know, three to five or four or something where uh, it was like, you know, us in a closet, basically in the same desk, just, you know, 
trying to put this company together and, and sell boxes and meet in the mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how I transitioned from the Amazon South America company into ButcherBox. How long was the in-between from going one to the other? I think they actually overlapped. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was like, I didn't want to stop. Yeah, they might have overlapped for a couple months until we like officially shut it down. Yep. But I already knew that, hey, we're going to shut it down. Like, I don't want to stop. I just want to keep going and learn fast. Did you get discouraged, (laughs) though, when you shut your first company down? And I don't know, like, to me, I don't view anything as necessarily a failure, especially if you learn from it. And you clearly did. And like, you guys obviously did well. But do you attach your identity to it? And is it like, Mm -hmm. oh... Like now that that first business shut down, like, am I capable of another one or no? You kind of just went right next into the next thing. It's a good question. I don't think that happened to me. Okay. I don't necessarily know why, but... That's good. I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's good. But, you know, mm-hmm. I guess I could see why it can happen to someone. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, like, I'm, I'm just so focused on on building something of value that I guess now I'm thinking about it. Like, I don't think I have time. Yeah, you like, overlapped. You just yeah, right to the next yeah. To one. think like, oh, I mean, this is not you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like a failure or like you know, I don't know how to build a business. Like, I don't think I took the time to think that for myself. That's good because I mean, I know for me, like, I am someone that I wrap my identity in like what I'm doing, and so I always get scared that like if something doesn't work out, like I feel like I'm gonna go through like an identity crisis <laughs> with it afterwards, <laughs> just because it's so wrapped up in like me. Like I I can't mm. disassociate. It's not like oh me personally, and then this is just my business. Like my business and me are very intertwined. Is yeah. do you feel that way with any of the businesses you've started? I do. I mean, and mostly I think it's around pride, like yeah. the feeling of pride of like, hey, you know, I thought about these, and we are creating these as a team. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of pride in in what you're building with with your team. So I think it's more around that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if if it doesn't work out, like, how much do you learn from that? Like, you know, whatever you were doing, how much that you actually got to learn about that thing? Uh, It's just, yeah, it's impressive how much you get to understand how things work or not work Mm -hmm. when trying something like a company, even if it fails, right? It's a massive success. Right. So you started working on ButcherBox with the founders of, and was there anyone else? Was it founders and like two other people or? Uh, so, you know, main CEO, Mike Salguero, this is the guy that I reached out to uh, via, you know, cold email and, and trying to get to learn from him. I indeed ended up learning a, a lot from him. You know, I think he's um, a great leader. And when I joined, there was two more people. One of them focused on operations. One of them focused on marketing, Mike and Eric, uh, their names. And then when I first joined, it was all about how are we selling a box of meat in the mail? Yeah. You know, like the marketing side of it, but not necessarily yet. How are we building a a butcher box brand? Like in our messaging and who we're working with, how do we get them to help us explain to people that they can go online and buy a box of meat in the mail? Because that was weird at the time. I mean, nowadays there's so many like food delivery services, (laughs) but... So wait, so are you calling me weird? No, 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 no. At the time, I feel like it was so unheard of to do something like that, where how do you convince people that that's a healthier alternative Mm -hmm. or that that's it's better to pay higher? Because, I mean, it was more expensive than going to your grocery store and buying steak, right? Uh, It depends. Okay. If you were looking for the exact same quality that we were doing and claims on the meat, ButcherBox is a better price alternative for it. But... 
The problem with it is that it's very hard to compare because usually when you go to a retail store and you grab a piece of meat, you don't know what you're buying. Mm-hmm. Because, like at Publix, you're yeah, not you, you, gonna get you, the same quality. Yeah, and, and you know, you could see a beautiful label that has like grass painted on it and it says, hey, this is a grass-fed meat. And then on the edge, it says grain finished, which is like, mm. Okay. No, like there's a lot of stuff like that that goes, uh, that happens in the meat industry. So it's very hard to compare like the actual claims of the meat that you're buying. But I think that when it's one-to-one, the exact same product, ButcherBox ends up being a better price alternative. But still though, even if the price was better, mm-hmm. you're right. It was weird to buy frozen meat in the mail. Yeah. Um, you know, you're completely right. And now consumer behavior has changed. Mm-hmm. Now it's like... Normal. It's normal. I, I buy anything in the yeah, mail. anything. anything. <laughs> People just know that they can buy something frozen or refrigerated and, mm-hmm. it, and it's, it can get delivered to your house. It's like a full consumer behavior and learning curve that has happened already. Uh, which I think it's amazing for the industry and and the consumer market in general. But the way that we were bridging that gap is we would go to specific audiences, let's say the paleo diet audience, and we would find, hey, who's the top five most influential people in this space that praise grass-fed beef and that people listen and hear when they say something or when they give out a recommendation. Mm -hmm. So we would go out to these people and we would basically broker affiliate deals with them where they would end up making a lot of money when they perform and sell butcher boxes. But for us, because we were a bootstrap company, you know, we had zero money in the bank. We were not paying upfront for these promotions. Yeah. But I think just because we're going to the right people that they actually had a very engaged audience and they knew how to sell the product, they ended up making a lot more money than if we would have, you know, paid upfront for that. Yeah. So I think that whole dynamic was interesting, but that was what we used to bridge the gap. Just basically finding people that are a trusted voice in the space and working with them. So like influencers, like YouTuber, was it, what is it, YouTube? Was it blogs? A a lot of it, but what was most successful at the time was email lists. Really? Like newsletters? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which is, you know, talking, you know, seven years ago, it's not as successful anymore right now because I don't think people are, you know, reading their emails from someone else who's Mm -hmm. like, you know, not actually one-to-one email that closely anymore. But what worked for us super well was email lists. Wow. Like the one question that we would ask someone that we uh, were going to work with was, how big is your email list? Wow. Okay. So <laughs> I guess nowadays it's kind of like how many followers you have. Yeah, what's your yeah, engagement? Yeah. And it yeah. was like, how big is your email list? <laughs> okay. And so that was that your role to find these people yes, and to, to talk to them? them and... Super close. Okay. So uh, f- for me, I loved it because it's a combination of sales and marketing, mm-hmm. which I think it's you know two different things. The sales part is, how can I make a partnership with someone? And how can I negotiate a deal that I know is going to be a win-win for them? And how can I get them to understand that they're going to make a lot of money with this if they know how to sell it? And how can I help them sell it? And then the marketing side is, okay, how can I explain the ButcherBox product better? How can I get content for this? How can I you know, help them sell it once we broker a deal and make a partnership on this? So that was basically my first role at ButcherBox is you know, pure growth. And did you just get thrown into that or was that something you wanted to do? Was it something that you had done in the past at maybe your previous company or was just kind of like, hey, we need sales and we need marketing? Uh, It it. it was mostly, you know, how are we figuring this out as a team? Uh, And I think that usually when that's the approach of companies, people end up like fitting into where they add the most value Mm -hmm. versus maybe working on something that they don't necessarily are great at or know how to do best. And that's why, and this is somewhat of another topic, but that's why I don't like to structure early teams okay. at companies like too strict or like yeah. too structured or like 
give out like extremely specific titles or like responsibilities because you don't really know what people are great at until you start working with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that gives you the flexibility and that gives people the flexibility to them naturally start fitting into the roles. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that titles are kind of arbitrary in the beginning. Besides, I think CEO is probably necessary. But um, after that, I think it's very just like, okay, you are technical, like <laughs> that's your role. And so that's like what you'll be working on is the developing the product. And then, okay, I'm good at marketing. So I'm going to start no. doing that. But it's not like you have a designated title in the beginning, because like you said, things can change. Yep. But I do think you need to have complementary skill sets yep. as a founding team or else you can kind of step on toes. <laughs> yeah. And, but like even a CEO though, you can't really like fully assume a CEO role of like, oh, I'm a CEO of this company, so I just make like, you know, high level decisions or whatever right. it is. Because even the CEO, you need to understand early on, like, okay, you know, what what's really my role in this company? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a week that you might need to act as, you know, the best salesperson, but then the next week you need to act as the best operations person. Yeah. And then after that, you need to do, you know, marketing, HR work yeah. and marketing, like, <laughs> yeah. um, which I guess could be resumed as the role of the CEO of an early stage company. Yeah, uh, But even the title of the CEO early stage, I mean, you shouldn't be taking it too seriously, I think. Totally agree. And I mean, I think as a startup, though, you're wearing so many hats, like you're just doing anything you need to do. Mm. I think at that point, it's <laughs> like you, you obviously have your role, but like everyone is doing anything at that point because you don't have a big team. It's mm -hmm. like stuff needs to get done and it needs to get done. So someone has to do it. <laughs> I feel like that's like what the startup world yeah. is like yeah. today. And, and, that, and that's also how you get, I think, team members that, you know, are committed mm -hmm. to the mission of the company when they step out of their regular comfort zone or their day-to-day -day job or responsibilities because they see an opportunity or mm -hmm. they see something that needs to be tackled inside the company. Yeah. Um, like that's the type of culture that you want to create. And for doing that, I think that you need to be flexible with you know, job responsibilities to start with and just not be too strict with the whole titles thing, which I think it actually ends up being better for everyone because with time and with growing the company, people start fitting into what their best role is to grow exponentially with the company mm -hmm. versus locking someone in a box of like, hey, you are you know, head of these or director of these or manager of right. these. I think that you no know, might seem like beneficial for the team members or employees early on, but I think it could end up hurting them in the long run. Yeah, I totally agree. And so when you were working, you were starting with the marketing slash sales, let's say, and like messaging and bringing people on. How quickly did you see success though? Like you guys started selling, you started working with people that have big email lists and you know, getting these deals and then they started promoting it. How long was that timeline of working with, let's say, an influencer and then seeing direct sales from them and continuing the process with them? So for ButcherBox, it was relatively quick, but, you know, we were working like 16 hour days, you yeah. know, like in the office and just like cranking work. How did you do school? <laughs> Good question. I, so my, my last semester, I ended up putting all my classes on Fridays. Real, you were able uh, to do that, yeah. though? And then, and then still, like, I would go, like, you know, two Fridays a month. And okay. just basically yeah. complete, you know, whatever I have to complete for that day. I still had a good GPA, though, I have to say. Um, <laughs> and, um, to set the record straight. <laughs> to set the record straight, yeah. Uh, just in case Bentley is, um, you know, listening to this. But um, <laughs> we did see early success with the marketing strategy and sales strategy that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that was another lesson for us where when you see success in something, double down. 
Yeah. On, on like on that. That's like what we're going through right now. We're focusing a lot on user acquisition and marketing and the products at a really good spot. So we're really focused on marketing. Like we're putting mm-hmm. more efforts now than we did a few months ago. And we're just testing out a bunch of channels and seeing what works and like, yeah, like you said, doubling down on what's working <laughs> yep, for yep, us. Totally. And, you know, that creates more work. Yeah. Right. I like so much work because you have to now, okay, this is working. You have to double down on this. But when I say it was a quick success, it doesn't mean that like we reached out to someone and that one person promoted us yeah. and then we saw a $10 million bump in revenue. Like, you know, we were reaching out to hundreds of people by the day. Wow. And just, you know, worrying, reaching out to people by the day. And then we would have stats like, okay, if we reach out to a hundred people, 10 are going to get back to us and then five are going to be a maybe and then one is going to be a yes. Mm-hmm. And then we had the stats to how many people we had to reach out on a daily basis to, get to then get sales. to a specific number of revenue. And then we also knew that about one to two percent of the people from the email lists were going to convert into customers. So we could almost like predict how many sales we were going to have based on how many email list subscribers that person we were working with had. Yeah, so, you, could, like, you got it down to like a science. Yeah, so there was like a science point. behind this yeah. and there was a lot of work. But, you know, once we got that down, because we saw early on that, you know, we work with a couple influencers or affiliates that were doing a good job that, hey, we just have to double down on this. Mm-hmm. And you guys did because ButcherBox is everywhere. Like <laughs> advertisement wise, like every YouTuber I watch, every <laughs> podcast, it's like you, you see a sponsor from them. And so you were working there throughout college. You graduated college. Were you still at ButcherBox at that yes, point? Yes. Yeah. Totally. When did you leave or what was the... Because you started, now you're at another, like you started another company. So what was that transition like? And why did you jump to start something else? So before that, I saw my last role at ButcherBox was head of logistics. So basically put together the logistics department from scratch with a great team. You know, we hired some great people for that team that are still running the team nowadays, which is, you know, amazing to see what, uh, what they built. And that happened because when we started scaling, we now had to ship all these thousands of boxes that we were selling. And logistics and operations became our biggest nightmare and basically the biggest trouble for our margin. Mm-hmm. Bootstrap company, so we had to make money on box one. We could not sell a box on box one that we were not making money on. That mm-hmm. was like that simple. So we started um, seeing some areas of opportunities in logistics and I started asking some questions that I thought were coming naturally to me, but when I look back into it, it was what you were saying before, which is I learned these from my prior company. Yeah. But I basically started asking questions like, hey, why do we have one box size? Like we were shipping ev- always everything on a 15 squared box. Okay. We had orders that actually could have gone out on a 10 or 12 square box, but then we had orders that could have gone out on a you know 20 square box. So, you know, seems like a relatively simple concept, but if you're not thinking about it and you don't have a system that decides what box you're using and optimizing for it you're just like losing so much money on it and then you know operational and shipping costs we were like 50x in the company and our our shipping costs were going up it's like wait you know we should be getting economies of scale of some sort uh, by Mm -hmm. doing this so i started asking all these questions and then mike the ceo at some point showed up to my desk and he's like hey dude do you seem to know something about this like i don't know where it's coming from but you know something about it and he gave me a massive stack of papers, like put them on my desk. And he's like, hey, here's every single you know, agreement that we've signed in logistics and operations. Here's every single like, you know, bill. Here's, here's what we're doing in, with this. Like, you know, help me figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically when I took over the, uh, the logistics department. And then I ran it for the last like five years uh, at ButcherBox. And then that's where Grip came from. Yeah. Which okay. is, hey, 
you know, why are we spending millions of dollars as a company to build this logistics arm? Like, that's mm-hmm. not what we do. Like, why are we spending yeah, all this money? You're not a logistics money? company. We're not. We're yeah. not. We're a meat brand that sources an amazing product, that works with amazing suppliers, that created an iconic brand that you now see everywhere and has like a beautiful front-end, you know, point-to-sell website. But logistics arm, all the game, all the company. Right. So my question that I kept asking myself is, why are we spending all this money doing this when we should just be plugging into something? Now I look at it as Stripe, for example. I was about to say, it's like Stripe, but logistics, yeah. So if you're using your engineers to try to rebuild Stripe internally, you know, what are you even doing? Yeah, that's a whole, that's why Stripe exists. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And that's why you can trust a company like Stripe to be the best at that because that's the only thing that they do. Right. So yes, you have to pay them money and that, you know, that's that's a cost that you have to incur. But when you look at it in the overall perspective, like it's making you scale much faster, save money, you know, process credit card, have yep. your data, you know, compliance perfectly aligned. So I, I thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why is there not a company that is just focused on helping perishable direct-to-consumer brands with their logistics, fulfillment, and data, and basically decision-making on how to ship a box? So you specifically focus on perishable goods? Yes. Do you think you'll ever expand and do non-perishable goods too? Um, or are there already not companies right now. for that? Not right now. I mean, we're like so focused on what we're doing, and we're scaling pretty fast, and the team is growing pretty fast that it's working the way that we're building the company and the product that we put together. So we're like fully focused on on this right now. How long ago did you start that? We officially incorporated the company two years ago. Okay. But we launched the first product about 18 months ago. Okay. And so you left ButcherBox to pursue Grip. Correct. And do you have co-founders? How did you meet them? So our co-founder, Jimmy Cooper, CTO of the company right now, he used to be head of data at ButcherBox. Okay. So he comes from the problem the same way I do. Mm-hmm. So he's been amazing in helping us figure out what's the intersection of logistics, technology, and, and you know, software and data to the point where like, we always ask ourselves, what did we wish we had when we were getting started at ButcherBox? And what can either like steal that scale, what piece of software or service or technology can help a company steal that scale? Because if we can work with a ButcherBox size company, then that means that, you know, a company that could be doing 50, 30 or, you know, $10 million in revenue, we could be like so much help for because we're basically like, you know, leveling the playing field and democratizing the full access to logistics and perishable uh, shipping. Yeah, that's great. And I know you had the problem, but when you started building it, was it a lot harder than you thought (laughs) to build or... Because you were already doing logistics at ButcherBox, like, was it easier to do or what was your mindset going into it and how difficult was it actually getting it started? Um, I would say that we have an unfair advantage. I mean, um, it's always best to come from the problem. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm, I'm like, serious about it. Like, we have an unfair advantage. Like, yeah. we both were one of the pioneers, you know, in the industry, in the market. We, like, basically helped scale one of the biggest successes for direct-to-consumer perishable brands that, mm-hmm. that's out there. So. That's an unfair advantage for us as entrepreneurs in the space, but it is such a benefit for our customers because the reason why I think that these have not been built before us, it's because the industry or the market segment is too new yeah. to have people that come from the problem have had the opportunity to like build this company. 
Like there has not been enough time from when the market basically exploded in growth and, and like reach a significant scale to now being able to put these services and programs for other customers. Is that why you decided to take the leap and do it? Part of it. Because you didn't want to miss out on this advantage <laughs> that you had? Yeah, part of it, for sure. And I was also asking myself the question of like, if I'm not the one who's going to solve this problem, who's going to solve it? Yeah, because it, you needed it to be solved. Yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally. And I was thinking about it as like, hey, you really need to come from the problem. Like, yeah. I, I strongly believe that you need to come from the problem because it's a very specific niche problem that has a lot of variables and intricacies that you, that you need to solve. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not to say that like there's not other people that could potentially solve the problem. Yes, yeah. for sure. But, you know, I, I think I have and Jimmy has an unfair advantage, you know, in terms of coming from the problem. Yeah, I think that's so cool. Your track record shows a lot of perseverance, a yeah. lot of success. So I have no doubt that this is going to do super, super well. I mean, you guys already have a bunch of customers, right? Since you've launched 18 Yeah, it's, ago? it's been good business so far. I think that we are probably the fastest growing company in the space. That's awesome. I venture to say a lot of work. Like the commitment that you see from the team working right now is like unbelievable. It's amazing. Like so much accountability and so much work, like and passion to solve the problem that I'm very proud to see with the team. And, you know, we can't really be doing this without the team that we put together for this. So how big is the team? Uh, so we're like 20 plus people Okay. right now. And did um, you raise money for this or is this bootstrapped? We raised a couple million dollars okay. uh, to start with, but it was mostly people from the industry. Okay. Like we basically asked the question of like, hey, who can help us yeah. get this company faster and better and, and bigger and more sophisticated? Mm-hmm. Great. Do you think that like whenever this sells, goes public, whatever your plans are for this company, that you'll just start something else right away? Or do you think you'll ever like slow down and I I don't want to say retire, (laughs) but. (laughs) Uh, So I don't think I believe in slowing down necessarily or like not being active of some sort. I think rest is important. Yeah. You know, taking time to think and acknowledge where you come from and acknowledge what else is in front of you and like what have you learned to this point and just, you know, take time to rest. I think that's extremely important. But I don't necessarily believe in in taking, you know, like a few months to do nothing. Yeah. Because the working capability, work ethic and and your brain, this is all like muscle type mm-hmm. of, you know, of things. So, you know, if you stop working out and then you try to do your biceps again, like, you know, you're gonna it's going to hurt one mm-hmm. after the day after, and then you're going to probably lose so much yeah. you know, uh, power with whatever you're doing. So for that reason, I, I don't see a moment in the near or midterm future where I would say, okay, I'm like slowing down. Yeah, I think that's good, though. I always like I don't ever envision myself like full on retiring. Like it's a like you said, I think you can like switch and do other things, but you should always have a work ethic or have, you know, be working hard at something. Mm-hmm. It just might look differently. Yep. And then before we go, what <laughs> advice would you give an entrepreneur today that maybe they're in college, like you were, you know, in Boston and they want to start a company or they want to learn from someone or they want to be an entrepreneur? Like, what would your first piece of advice be to them? Work hard. Yeah. I think similar to what we were saying before of like the overnight success misconception that has made people think unfortunately that you don't necessarily need to work hard to be very successful Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's the case Mm -hmm. i think you need to bust your ass and work hard and and say yes to work because a lot of people i think have become very entitled to say no to work early on in their career but 
you don't know what yes is going to be your winning lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. You have to say yes and do the work and do it like as hard and passionate and like with a success mindset, like as much as you can. And I always think that, I mean, I love that. I, I totally agree. And also everything leads to something else. Like whatever you're doing right now doesn't mean you're stuck doing it forever. Mm-hmm. Like your story, you've had so many transitions and they've all kind of led into the other. Um, without one, you probably wouldn't have done the other. So I always think like, say yes, like you said, you can always pivot, you can always do something else, but you learn so much from every experience that you have. And you never want to be the person that's like, thinks that they're above something or Mm -hmm. thinks that they can't learn from something because I think you can learn from any like work experience that you have. Yeah, totally. And when you get older and when you get more experience and when, when you've had, you know, a few companies under your belt, I think you can start to say no to some things because now you learn what you can say no to. But when you're starting out, like you don't know what you should be saying no to. Mm -hmm. So I think you're much better off saying yes to the different experiences that you can have so that you can learn from them, understand what you like to do, what are you good at, and then just, you know, focusing on that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Where can they find you, your company, if they want to work with you guys, like plug anything you want? They can look for the company. uh, I think LinkedIn, just Grip or Grip Shipping. Then my LinkedIn, Juan Camilo Meso, I think it's um, in there. And then I've actually started posting a little bit more on Twitter for the last okay. uh, couple of weeks. I opened it in 2011 and I, I think I went on it like twice. Yeah. And never, <laughs> never went on it again until like a month ago. Okay. But I've been encouraged to, you know, say more, to, to stay more active and to, you know, use it also to learn from other people because I, you know, like learning experience a lot. So uh, yeah, company, gripshipping.com. It's the website. Uh, LinkedIn, just grip or grip shipping. You'll find us. And then my uh, Twitter, you know, Juan Camilo Meso. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed. And don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovan Roomf, and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here, and vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.